The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. When I first met Caleb, um, when he asked me to join this conference five months ago, I had no idea what the topic was, uh, nor I knew, uh, I knew about the assignment that I was given to. So I said, no problem, let's, let's do it together. And then as the October 5th approached, uh, it was a daunting task. It really was. The more I read about it, the more I think about it, uh, how do you define Trinity? Right? How do you define Trinity? But I really trust that Lord will give us um, grace this morning, uh, this beautiful Saturday morning, as we come before our triune God. And a lot of people think it is a speculative or irrelevant doctrine. But I'm here to, my prayer is that I'm here to uh, explain and testify that it is the greatest doctrine, it is the foundation of our great, magnificent gospel. So I'll, let me just begin with a uh, story of Augustine, who is known as the father of Western theology, Western church. And Western, uh, Augustine was contemplating on the topic of Trinity one day, and he was walking along the beach. And he saw a little young boy uh, with a bucket carrying the water from the sea to this little hole, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he was walking, and Augustine approached him and asked him, uh, what are you doing? And the boy said, I'm trying to put the ocean into this little hole. Okay? And I think just that really explains uh, what we are trying to do. But I'm here to stand today uh, to... Rather than defining the Trinity, I want to think of it as describing the Trinity that God revealed himself in the scripture. As best as I can, as thoroughly as I can, and as wonderfully as I can, but as quickly as I can. That's, uh, that's just my goal, and my goal for this session is twofold. I know I was given the task of defining the Trinity, but as I was preparing for today, uh, I want to have a second part, and the first part, of course, is to describe the doctrine of Trinity, how it is uh, formulated from the scripture, and perhaps even talk about the logic of Trinity. But the second half of the lecture that I have prepared is something very, very different. In fact, I want to go over selective, a few selective passages from the Gospel of John, and see how this great doctrine is written all over the gospel. And by so doing, contrary to uh, some of you, I pray that you don't, but many people think the doctrine of Trinity is a speculative, irrelevant, uh, and impractical uh, kind of like teaching. But I'm uh, hoping to convey that it is rather the opposite. It is the most magnificent foundation 
of Christian gospel, looking at some, uh, some of the passages in John's gospel. So let me, let me begin <clears throat> defining the Trinity. Can we go to the next, next slide? Classically, uh, Trinity was defined in these terms. Okay. God is one in essence and three in persons. Okay. Just ask you to take a look at it. One in essence and three in persons. And essence referring to the being of God. One God, being of God. While the person is used as substance within the being. Okay. It is one God but there are three persons. So he's one unified God in one essence, but diversified, or plurality, if you will, in three persons within the Godhead. Okay? Uh, Trinity means tri-unity. It just doesn't make sense. Our triune God is not a simple unity, but there is a plurality in unity. Hmm. The uh, Trinity is one of the great mysteries of Christian faith. And mystery uh, is because it is beyond our reasoning, but it is not against the revelation. Okay? It is known only by revelation, which is the scripture, and therefore Trinity is not the subject of natural theology, which means something you attain through your experience and your observed facts and know about God, but it is in the category of revelation, different than natural theology. I'm just giving you through some basic, um, the building blocks before we go over this. Okay, next. The formulation uh, of this great uh, doctrine um, and uh, Actually, essence, referring to the being of God, essence is primary and the person is secondary. I'm quoting R.C. Sproul. And essence is similarity, oneness, where the person is a dissimilarity in the nature of God and he is unified in, in one essence but diversified in three persons. I forgot to give you the very uh, uh, definition or working definition that I wanted to start with. But let me read this to you, okay? Trinity is a doctrine of God or doctrine about God, and it declares that there is only one true God, and that this God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each of whom is distinctive from, yet interrelated with the others, and all, and that all three persons are fully, equally, and eternally divine. Okay, I think that just kind of nails it. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is uh, explain uh, what this definition is proposing, okay? is one true God. The God of the scripture is one true God, and it's in existing three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are distinct. Nevertheless, they are related, interrelated within, uh, with each other, that all three persons are fully and equally and eternally divine, okay? They're not one-third God, one-third uh, Son is one-third God, one-third Holy Spirit is one-third God. They are fully and equally and eternally divine. Okay, can we go to the next slide? Okay, how was this doctrine formulated? Uh, while the word Trinity 
does not occur in the Bible, the concept of Trinity is all over the pages of the Scripture. It's not as explicit in the Old Testament, but uh, much more explicit in the New Testament. However, in the, still in the Old Testament, it is, uh, the image of Trinity is very, very uh, noticeable. So it is based on two or three biblical truths. I just divided into three things, but two biblical truths which are evident in the Scripture, and the logical conclusion of these teachings of the Scripture is the doctrine of Trinity. What are those three, three things? Number one, there is only one God. Okay? The central teaching of Judaism, called Shema, proclaims that here, O Israel, the Lord our God and the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. And Jesus comes along. When someone asks them, what is the greatest commandment? In other, in other words, what is the greatest, most important thing in Christianity? And Jesus himself answered, quoting Shema, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength, and God is one. What about Paul, Pauline theology? Instead of his, uh, excuse me, in spite of his strong teaching on deity of Christ, especially in Colossians and all his writings, he emphatically declared that there is only one God. So Old Testament, Jesus, and the New Testament clearly proclaims from beginning to the end, the scripture speaks about one God. There is only one God. Okay? The second assertion that we see uh, in the scripture is that that one God and, uh, but is, in, in, is manifested in plurality of persons. Father is God, Son is God, and Holy Spirit is God. Okay? Father is God. Throughout the scripture, it is no question that God is said to be the Father. Jesus himself taught that God is the Father, our Father who art in heaven. Okay? So it is very, very clear, Father is God. <clears throat> I think in the center of the doctrine of Trinity is the Christology of deity of Christ. Throughout history, from 3rd uh, century on, all the way to 8th century, all the church councils were uh, <clears throat> on, the, uh, on the issue of Trinity, whether it is the uh, divinity of Christ or humanity of Christ, and the uh, people and the enemy was attacking this doctrine of Trinity. So, Son is God, and if you look at the scripture, Jesus himself proclaimed that he is, he is Yahweh, okay? And that Yahweh of Exodus chapter 3, and in John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham I am. That's outright declaration that I am the Yahweh. John the Baptist, if you recall, he said, I am the voice calling in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Quoting Isaiah 40, referring Jesus as the Lord or Yahweh of the Old Testament. Okay? Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, John declares that uh, you know, Jesus is the first and the last, beginning and the end, Alpha and the Omega. Not only that, Jesus accepted worship, which is only is possible to God. He accepted worship. Thomas declared that, my Lord, my God. Okay? And Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, our great God and Savior, referring to Jesus Christ who is returning. 
Scripture is clear. Jesus is God. But I think the most uh, clear place is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, hologos, referring to the Son, and the word was with God, and the word was God, which I will explain when we go through uh, John's gospel in a minute. So, Father is God, Son is God, and thirdly, Holy Spirit is God. Okay, Acts chapter 5, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Holy Spirit is called God, who has the attribute of God of omniscience and omnipresent. Only God has those attribute, attributes, and Holy Spirit is called God. Not only that, uh, Holy Spirit is associated with the members of the Trinity under the name of God in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And thirdly, and uh, Holy Spirit appears along with the Father and the Son in the New Testament benediction in 2 Corinthians. Okay? It is clear. One God, three persons are called God, and lastly, they are distinctive persons. Scripture clearly differentiates personalities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinctive persons, three persons of triune God. The three members of Trinity, a uh, distinct person is clear. Okay? Some examples, and we could go on and on and on, but some examples, okay? Son, Jesus, pray to the Father. Distinctive the, the distinctively placed. Son, pray to the Father, our Father who art in heaven. And he said, I am the way to the Father. How could he be the way and the Father at the same time? It's just distinct. Secondly, Father spoke of Jesus from heaven when he was baptized. This is my beloved Son, whom I love. They are distinct. They are not the same persons. Okay. And they have separate titles all over the scripture, Son, Father, and the Holy Spirit, which tells us that they are distinctive persons. Okay. So if you put these three uh, strong assertions and teaching of the scripture together, and the logical conclusion is the doctrine of Trinity. One God, three persons. One essence, essence and uh, three persons. I think another way to explain and approach Trinity is what theologians call economical Trinity and ontological Trinity. Let me explain, okay? You don't have to, uh, these are big words. Ontology is the study of being. So when we talk about ontological Trinity, we are referring to Trinity in essence itself without regarding to the God's work of creation and redemption, okay? So in the Trinity, there are three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who work together are one being, one being, one God. Therefore, ontological structure of the Trinity is unity, okay? Ontological Trinity has to do with being. On the, on the other hand, when we speak about the academic Trinity, Okay? We are dealing with the activity or the works or the roles of three persons of Godhead in regards to creation 
and redemption. It has more to do with function, if you will. Okay? So going back to the ontological trinity, Westminster Large Catechism says, three persons are distinguished by their personal properties, an ontological sense, referring to ontological uh, organization within, within, within Godhead. And this is what it says in uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. It defines this personal properties of three persons of Trinity it, it, like this. Number one, it's proper to the Father to beget the Son. Okay? And the Son to be begotten of the Father. Okay? And thirdly, to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Okay. What we are seeing is how uh, three persons within, uh, within, uh, within the being, how they are structured. But when it says begotten, unlike what Islamic scholars and uh, skeptics say, it doesn't mean birth or creation. It doesn't mean that. Okay? So that's the ontological trinity. And in terms of economic trinity, it distinguishes from three persons of Godhead in terms of their roles in creation and redemption. Let me just ask you, when the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does that sound like ontological side of trinity, or does it sound more like uh, economical side of trinity? It's the ontological side, isn't it? It's before the creation, before the time has begun. So interesting, John's gospel begins even before the creation. And the ontological side of Trinity, where Jesus existed, Son existed, along with God, as one God. Okay? So in Orthodox Christianity, we say that the Son is equal to the Father, in power, in glory, and in being, okay? So discussion uh, rests heavily on this John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But when we say uh, Son is equal to the Father in power and glory and uh, being, an ontological side, there is no subordination. They're equal. But if you look at economical trinity side, there is a subordination. And F.F. Bruce calls that hierarchy in trinity. Now that sounds a little bit weird, but if you look at the scripture, it is all over the scripture. Jesus repeatedly say, I listen to the Father and I do not do anything on my own. So on ontological side, there's an equal equality and there is no subordination, but in terms of economic trinity, uh, there is a subordination and even, I would call it, hierarchy. Okay? I don't know how I'm doing with my time, but I want to just briefly mention the logic of Trinity a little bit. Okay? Trinity means tri-unity. Three in one. It doesn't say three and one. Do you hear the difference? It's three in one, not three and one. So God is not simple unity but it is a plurality or community in unity, okay? That's our God, that's our triune God. Therefore, 
Trinity is a great mystery. It is a mystery because it is beyond our reason. But it is not a paradox, which, which means it's a logical contradiction, which means Trinity goes beyond reason, but it does not go beyond revelation of God. Okay? Uh, the philosophical law of non-contradiction. I don't like to talk about things like this, but I think I'm kind of forced to uh, with this topic. It tells us that something cannot be true and false at the same time in the same sense. Something cannot be A and B, right, at the same time, at the same sense. And that is the fundamental law of all rational thoughts in philosophy. Now, doctrine of Trinity does not violate that. Okay, and here's why. Doctrine of Trinity is not saying God is three person and one person at the same time, at the same sense. It is not saying that. It is saying God is three person and one being at the same time. So it is, it is different. Rather, it is the belief that there are three persons and one being and one essence, one nature. And this may be beyond our reason's ability to comprehend, but certainly is not against the reason's ability to apprehend consistently. It does not violate that. So if you were to put in terms of the law of non-contradiction, we could put it this way. While God is one and three at the same time, but he's not one and three in the same sense. Do you hear it? Do you hear the difference? He is one in the sense of his essence and being and nature, but three in the sense of his persons. That's who God is as he revealed in the scripture. So there is no violation of the law of non-contradiction in the doctrine of Trinity. And that kind of ends my first part. I'm, praise God. Yeah. <laughs> but I do want to spend some time... <clears throat> Uh, with the Gospel of John, which I am in, in love with right now. I'm preaching through John's Gospel right now, and probably uh, it'll take about a year and a half, two years to go through it. And uh, last year, uh, I, was fall, I fell in love with Book of Romans. Now, moving into John's Gospel, I was just kind of preparing for today, and some selective passages that came to my mind and I saw the footprint of Trinity all over the place. Okay, And John's Gospel, as you know, uh, the theme is deity of Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And in fact, in John, uh, John chapter 20, verse 31, the purpose of John's writing, this may be written so that you may know, you may believe, Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, so that by believing, you may have life in his name, okay? So the theme is the deity of Christ, and it begins with the very first of the gospel. And it writes, in the beginning was the word, it's not is the word, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, okay? Three statement really, really defines Trinity. It's a great starting point. But it is an amazing statement because if you hear the first verse of John's gospel, what do you hear? In the beginning. And the Jewish audience knew right away, okay? In the beginning, where, do you, where else do you see that? 
book of Genesis. John intentionally wrote that way. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Now, would you think with me? Does that sound like ontological side of Trinity? Or does it sound more like economical side of Trinity? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. It's the economic side, right? In fact, it, it is speaking about what happens after the beginning. But if you look at John chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks about in the beginning was the word. Does that sound like it's speaking about the ontological side of Trinity or economic side of Trinity? It is the ontological side, before the creation, before any redemption actually being displayed. So it is amazing. It is speaking about what happens before the creation. And that's how it begins. And in the beginning was the word. In other words, the son is a pre-existent God. Okay? Before there is anything, son existed with the father. The second statement is, and the word was with God. Okay? It doesn't say the word is God himself, but he was with God, and it tells you he was coexistent with God. So the Son and Jesus is preexistent and coexistent, and the conclusive statement is that the Word was God. It says he is the self-existent God, the great I am. So he's the preexistent, coexistent, and self-existent God. And it tells us that in him was life. That's a big statement, people. Atheists believe matter and energy existed first, and somehow life came into being somehow, and that takes great faith to believe that, right? It really takes great faith. If you watch movie The Case for Christ, at the end, Lee Strobel struggles. Both requires a great faith, step of faith. I think it takes greater faith to be an atheist than become a Christian. Okay, so John 1.1 speaks about that Jesus, clear deity of Christ. Okay, so can we go to that next slide? Oh, I forgot to show you this. I, there is no perfect illustration or diagram, but I find this is pretty helpful. Uh, if you look at it, God is uh, God, Father is God, Son is God, and Spirit is God. However, Spirit is not Father, and Spirit is not Son, and Father is not Son, and Father is not the Spirit. And Son is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father. But God is, uh, Father is God, and Son is God, and Spirit is God. One God, three persons, and they are distinct. Okay, next slide. I just showed you uh, very beginning where the prologue of John's gospel is magnificent. It really is. Okay, it has the depth of, I don't know, theology of Romans, and then there are great selective narratives of <laughs> Jesus. Okay, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning, restating 1 to 3, and verse 3 says, Through Him, the Son, all things were made. Economic side of Trinity, okay? He's the creator. He's the, 
He's the beginning. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And the verse 4, in him was life. Before the creation, there was a life in him, in the Son. He is the very source of life and origin of life. I think the greatest mystery of atheistic belief is that what is the origin of life? Where does it begin? Okay, so we see a picture of Trinity. Can we go to the next slide? I mean, uh, you may or may not be familiar with this passage, but if you look at great chapter, third chapter of John's Gospel, the great chapter of John's Gospel has John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. It's a story of conversation between Jesus, son of God, or the Lamb, and the Lamb of God, with this person named Nicodemus. And right after that, there's a story of John the Baptist. And then this little section at the end, which, is, which I would call it Johannine Christology. Okay? It doesn't seem very fancy, but what it describes is incredible. Okay, let me just read it through, okay? The one who comes from above is above all. Who's that? Jesus. Only Jesus in history. One who comes from above is supreme of all things. Sounds like Colossians chapter 1. Okay? And one who is from the earth, belongs to the earth, speaks as one from the, from the earth. The one who comes from the heaven is from above all. He repeats himself. And verse 32, he testifies, the son testifies to what he has seen and heard. And no one accepts his testimony. Only Jesus, his testimony is firsthand witness. He saw it, he heard it. He is from heaven. No one else, not the prophets, not the apostles, not the preachers, but only the Son. Verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified or sealed that God is truthful. If you listen to his testimony, you seal that God is true. Verse 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. Jesus, the Son, speaks the word of God, okay? Verse 35, uh, the Father loves the Son, has placed everything in his hand. It speaks about supremacy, lordship of Jesus Christ, great Christology. The reason I show you this is because what he's about to say, especially in the upper room discourse, is the testimony and firsthand testimony and the word of God uh, itself. Okay, so can we go to the next slide? Okay, I want to give you a little bit of uh, background of upper room discourse. Okay, what would you say to your family members and loved ones if you know that you will be dying tomorrow? Okay, you know tomorrow. Uh, you'll be going back to, to the Father. And basically, what would you tell your loved ones? And I'd really ask you to just kind of think with me, okay? Jesus, after three years of public ministry, okay, this is the day before his arrest and his crucifixion, and he had last Passover meal, and in verse 1, it says he loved his disciples. He loved his own 
to the end. Can I just ask you, what is that to the end referred to? Telos. To the end of his life? To the end of disciples' life? To the end of the time? What is that referred to? Okay, that's what we want to think about. So he does acted parable of washing the feet of the disciples, which is the ministry that, which is the work that is supposed to be allotted to the, the, the junior servants, slaves. Okay, he takes off his outer garment, put a towel right around his waist, and he kneeled down before each disciples. There's no way to wash someone's feet without kneeling down, right? And the God of the universe, triune God, person of triune God, kneels down before these disciples and washing them one by one. And Peter, and when he came to Peter, Peter asked, no, 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 you can't do this. And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, unless I do this, you have no share with me. ESV renders, and Ivy renders, you have no part with me, but ESV renders, you have no share with me. What does that mean? He loved them to the end. What kind of love is that? Do you realize in this critical situation of him going to the Father and he's going to be dying, and he's, he knew, he knew the extent of agony of the cross, and his heart was troubled. If you look at other Gospels, he, his heart was troubled to the point of death. And he wants to tell the disciples that I love you, okay? And probably want to say the things that he wanted to say the most. You know what he does? He speaks about the very inner person of triune God. Isn't that interesting? But isn't that supposed to be speculative and irrelevant? Not so with Jesus. This is what he wanted to say. And at this moment, this is what he wanted to say. Okay? John chapter 14. Okay? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And the Philip says, Lord, show me, uh, show, show me, uh, show us, uh, us the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hmm. Trinitarian language, right? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then he says this incredible statement. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and Father is in me? Okay. Trinitarian language of mutual indwelling of Father and the Son. I'm in the Father, and Father is in me. Hmm. It's a profound theology, okay? And theologians call this ineffable, meaning we cannot really understand it fully. Can you? But if you think about Father is in the Son, and Son is in the Father. It's a very simple description. The simple word is in, right? In. It's ineffable uh, beyond our ability to understand, but as a little child could picture that. At the same time, the best minds cannot fathom that fully, right? That's the picture. 
And that's what he's describing at this critical moment of Jesus' ministry, a day before his death. Okay? Moreover, if you just go down to verse 16, he began to explain the third person of Trinity, Holy Spirit. In fact, Upper Room Discourse is full of Trinity. If you want to have a proper doctrine of Holy Spirit, I think we need to look at the Upper Room Discourse. This is teaching about the Holy Spirit through the second person of Trinity, Jesus himself. And he said, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, Parakletos, right? to be with you forever, okay? And even the Spirit of Truth, referring to Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. And listen to this. You know Him, for He dwells. He manos, John chapter 15 language. He abides in you, the believers, and you will be, uh, and, and will be in you. Do you hear the analogy? Father is in the Son, and Son is in the Father. And now he's saying, Holy Spirit is in you, and you are in the Spirit. Do you hear the analogy? Okay, and he speaks in this kind of tongue. Going down a little further. Jesus, you know, on his way to the cross, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. So strange. He's leaving, but he's coming. Okay. I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll come to you. Yet, yet a little while, and the world will see, see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Now, listen to this. I'm in my Father. Son is in the Father. And you, believers, are in me. And I, Christ, is in you. Do you hear it? What is he doing? He is using... Trinitarian relationship to describe what it means to be in Christ. Do you hear it, people? And this is no theology. This is the reality. That's what Jesus is describing. Wow. Is that what it means to be in Christ? If Christ is in me, and Father is in Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in me. What does that mean? Last verse. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And listen, listen carefully now. And we will come to him, to the believer, and make our home with him. What is Jesus saying? Who's we? Trinity, Father, and the Son he's talking about. And he's talking about Parakletos, Holy Spirit, three persons of Trinity in me. Not visiting, but make our home in you. I mean, that's, that's an incredible, incredible message. This is what Jesus wanted to say to his beloved disciples, whom he loved to the end, at the last breath of his life. The Trinitarian language. When we say we are in Christ, unless I do this to you, you have no share with me. What does that mean? When you are in Christ, to be united with Christ, it is to share in union created by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
of the incarnate Son, who himself is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. Do you hear it? When you're in Christ, he is in the Father, and Father is in the Son. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you, that's what it means to share in Christ. Okay? Therefore, union with Christ is nothing less than fellowshipping, if you will, with all three persons of Trinity. Okay? It involves nothing less than the Father and the Son making their home in the heart of the believers. Now, these believers were frightened. These believers were confused. These believers were just kind of like lost. Can you imagine? A day before the crucifixion, and Jesus shares about inner nature of God. Why is he doing that? I think what he's doing is he wants them to know my love for you, my love for you is this kind of love. This is what it means that I'm going to love you to the end. Can I just ask you, can relationship between Father and the Son ever be separated? Impossible. But there is a sense in which it happened on the cross. Why? Because His great love, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. I want us to go to one more section. <clears throat> Next. John chapter 15 is the same Trinitarian language. I am the vine, you are the branches, who abides in me, dwells in me, mano, same word. John chapter 14. And I in him, he's, uh, he is that bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. But I want us to go to chapter 17, okay, the last chapter. Chapter 17, as you know, is the prayer of Jesus. Okay? Jesus pray like the high priest. And I just want to spot out just a couple of sections. Okay? Here. Now, Father, it's verse 5. Glorify me. Whoa. Is that okay? Is that okay to ask? Unless he's God, right? Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does that sound like? Ontological trinity. Ontological trinity, right? But I think the verse that really blows in my mind is this verse that I'm trying to uh, explain. As Jesus was praying for the Christians who will be believing through uh, the disciples in history, that includes you and I, and he was praying for unity, okay? And this is what he prayed. The glory that you have given me, I have given them to them that they may be one, unity, even as we are one. Do you hear it? The unity of the church stems from the unity of, of Trinity. So does that, sound like does, does that sound impossible to you then? It's not impossible. It's not impossible. Right? I in them, and you in me, even as we are one, I in them, Christ in believers, the church, and you in me, God in the Son, that they may become perfectly one. Now listen to this. 
so that the outcome of that unity of the church stemming from Trinity is that so that the world may know, the world will see something when the church is one, that you send me. Okay? And then the next verse. And you love them, the, wo- the world, even as you love me. I don't know whether you see it. When I first saw this a few years ago, I was blown away. What is Jesus saying? Okay. Through the unity that stems from the Trinity, the world may see that you send your son. And the next part says, and, you, uh, and God loves the world just as, even as, autus, you love me. Father loves the son. That's a Trinitarian love. Can I just ask you, my brothers and sisters, this morning? I know it's a contemplation. What's the quality of love between Father and the Son? What's the extent? What's the longevity of love between Father and the Son? What's the quantity of love between Father and the Son? Immeasurable. Is the love between Father and the Son separable? Absolutely not. And Jesus is saying, that's how I love you. As Father loves the Son and Son loves the Father, from eternity past, with the same love, equal love, even as, just as, autus, I love you. Let me finish, okay? People say it's speculative. People say it's irrelevant. People may think, but not so with Jesus. It was so relevant and so real and so loving that this is what he wanted to say at the last moment of his breath to the disciples that he loved, to give them hope, to give them poise, strength, And this is the very gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? It is the most loving, most life-giving thing that Jesus and or God wanted to speak to us. The doctrine of Trinity, therefore, I, I really believe it is the most relevant, most truthful, most practical truth there is. And it is the foundation of the gospel, and it is our Christian faith, okay? He wanted to... Say and share to them, this is how I love you, okay? And it was an inseparable love that's comparable to love between Father and the Son. And he wants them to have and live by faith, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, okay? And he wants you and I to be convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. 